Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. I was dared to see if I could do this the way Axl Rose did. Unfortunately, I am not able to whistle, but there we go. We are sitting here in Zach's backyard in beautiful New London, Connecticut, on a Sunday evening that is hot as all hell. Our regular listeners may recognize that we normally do this on Saturdays, but Zach decided in honor of Christoph Brzingis to take a one-day quarantine for health reasons. And by the way, what the hell's the purpose of a one-day quarantine? It's like dieting till four in the afternoon. Like, I don't even understand. It's like a fasting (laughs) in 2020. It's fasting in 2020. You know what it is? It's millennial white Ramadan because it's like, (laughs) it's like, we'll do it, but I want to feel good about myself for what I tried. In the background, because of this, you might hear church services because New London is famously one of the spiritual centers of the world. So that is why we are where we are. And next week, we're going to take a week off and do a bonus episode that we've already recorded, but... Brandon pointed out that we get one sick day per group, and Zach took it. Uh, Brandon is the Elon Musk of labor for us. Yeah, I'm sorry. You had next week off, and Zach took a sick day, so now the day's gone. You right. have to work next Friday now, and I'm we're going to record a podcast. Like, I, it, we're, we're I have co- to do what I have it, to do. We're a collective, it, it, so it's one sick day right, per Right. <laughs> it, it's fine. I've been divorced before. So, Zach... What's your rant going to be about? I also, uh, uh, apologies for the church rant. Uh, we made a deal with them. They get to hold church service, but they have to start smoking, and then we'll become Christian. And uh, that's the way we kind of worked that out. That's fair. Um, I, but, You know, they never complain when I go back for my 11th glass of wine there. And I have to, <laughs> I have to really, really appreciate their willingness to work collaboratively. Yeah, we're at the reli- we're at the <laughs> intersection of religion and booze. Um my rant is on a uh, welfare king and Silicon Valley weird nerd hero Elon Musk. I'm going to talk about Daniel Snyder, which one of us was brave enough to make one of the seven worst people in sports and his pattern of sexual harassment in his own company which surprised him and the way Roger Goodell just refuses to even acknowledge this as an issue. Uh, I'm going to talk about the untimely passing of uh, UConn basketball great and sort of like his legacy and his relationship to sort of his tenure at UConn and my own. The reason that Andrew's going last is because we decided nobody wanted to follow that with our dumb jokes. So we're going to take a quick break and then we will be back to talk about the way the media is the intersection of sports and politics. Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective, located at the intersection of sports and politics. Now, here are your hosts, Ed, Andrew, and Zach. Well, I'm going to start off my uh, the rants today with my own uh, personal Piccadilly, which is what I like to refer to as COVID capitalism. And anyone who's uh, friends with me on any social media platform knows that I have a particular hatred to a massive recipient of government welfare, a fandom on Twitter has emerged of weird internet nerds that will rise to defend him at any moment, and that is an Elon Musk. Because Elon Musk, in the middle of COVID, decided to use his platform, and he does have a pretty big platform. Uh, He's obviously a a big entrepreneur. He's a very famous entrepreneur. He has a big following on Twitter. He uses Twitter much in the same way Donald Trump uses Twitter to kind of be an unfiltered version of himself. And he put out that a... 
a second government bailout would be not in the best interests of people. Now, this is why Elon Musk is almost uniquely, uh, uniquely positioned to be the absolute worst fucking messenger of this. Um, first off, all he's famous for is being a part of PayPal, having a decent idea, and then using it to close the accounts of people with low-yield accounts because they didn't have the money to sue them or fight them, which helped them increase their revenue. He then used that uh, to go to Tesla, where he has union-busted, fought against COVID protocols, threatened to move because he had to up, up, uh, adhere to COVID protocols, and uh, SpaceX, where he is literally dependent on government contracts. That's the entire business model is government contracts. And Tesla, he's gotten billions upon billions of dollars in subsidies from this government. This is a billionaire telling people that are honest to God struggling right now, that are hoping to get $600 fucking extra from our government. By the way, $600 extra is what like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk make by the time I finish this word. That is how out of touch these guys are. And they have the balls to say that it's not in the best interest of American people to have their government help them while they have done nothing, while Elon Musk has done nothing but gotten rich off of government corporate welfare. And he thinks he has a standing to tell people what is in the best interest of people. Was it in the best interest of people when he was fighting the county in California to reopen against COVID protocols? What is the best interest of his workers when he was fighting a unionization drive to allow them to have safety and save their working conditions? This guy is a fucking fraud, and I hope all of his weird little internet minions listen to this show because the guy is a false prophet and he is a false god. He is a asshole. So you you turned me on to how bad Elon Musk was because you and I are I do follow you on social media and it is a large portion of your social media. It's like seventy percent. Yeah, that and pictures of Stanley. <laughs> That's it. That's what we got. The dog. Here's a guy, like every great entrepreneur, like Donald Trump Jr., who inherited his way into 97% of his wealth and then had a good idea. Well, Donald Trump's never had a good, Junior's never had a good idea. He had one idea and okay, and now we're supposed to fall over. And the internet love of him is so weird. I disliked Andrew Yang when he got in the race because the same people on the internet that were bragging about Elon Musk were bragging about Andrew Yang. Then I actually listened to Andrew Yang and said, Oh, no, he's the angel to Elon Musk's devil. Like, Andrew Yang is a thoughtful person who doesn't spend 96% of his time in masturbation thinking about his brand. And why anyone gives a shit what Elon Musk says is beyond me. But you're right. It's all these, you know, I guess it's the left-wing version of the incels. There's this, like, weird... And it's non-zero, but it's a, it's a fragment of the population, probably older, that, like, I think, for, and it starts with Perot, really, the clamoring for, like, a, uh, we'll, let's, get, let's get a businessman in office. Let's see what a businessman can do, because, you know, this false idea that running this country, it's, it's like running a business, and, well, we've just had, coming up on four years of Trump, and how's that worked out? <laughs> Not very well, obviously. Elon Musk, stick to cars, stick to, to spaceships and, and fucking toys for the ultra-rich, stick to that, and leave fucking you know policy and you know your takes on uh on you know social welfare keep to yourself shut well, the fuck up let's agree that we will cut the checks to everyone 
but he also gets no checks from the government ever for any reason, and then see what he says. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have regular tax. You're going to pay the same tax as everybody else does as a percentage of income. Now, in the interest of, you know, just being fair while you guys were all talking about this, I took a second and looked up what Zach said, which was he would make $600 by the time he finishes that word. And I'm going to assume that word took you one entire second. Uh, The quick article Google search I could find is that Elon Musk actually makes $16 million per hour, divided by 60, divided by 60. If that word took one second, he actually made $4,444. I I would be fine if every American got that amount of money for a a stimulus check. Um, I I mean, the only way to tie this into sports is I I truly believe I would watch ESPN every day from 5 to 8 p.m. if uh, you got to take these, these, these ghouls out of their homes and drag them into a square and we just get to harangue them. For three hours, unfiltered, and they can't do anything, and they just have to sit there and take it, and then they get to go back and make their billions, but we all get to feel a little better. It's like that bullshit TV show. What was it called? Seek Undercover Boss. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah, because, oh, I appreciate my workers now because they did what they did with a mask on for 30 seconds. But, uh, yeah, live their life for a fucking year and then get back to us. So I'm going to talk about a person that one person at this table – believed is one of the seven worst people in sports dan snyder great news he after having convening the the committee to find out if redskins was offensive it is he then came up with no name so that sponsors could bid for it okay i guess we're all supposed to be proud of him for that but then 15 women came out and talked about a culture of sexual harassment in the workplace Emily Applegate, who is one who, who came forward, said it was the most ex- miserable experience of my life, that this was her dream job to work in sports, and they told her constantly that she was replaceable. So Rod Rivera said, we're trying to create a new culture here. We're hoping to get people to understand that they need to judge us on where we are and where we're going as opposed to where we've been, which is the abusive boyfriend excuse. Baby, you don't understand. I feel bad. I'll do it. I won't do it next time. Right? He's a troglodyte by football coach standards. <laughs> but why are we holding Dan Snyder responsible? In 2018, Dennis Green, not the famous Dennis Green, another Dennis Green, was fired for selling access to cheerleaders' bikini photo shoots as part of the premium seating packages. What person in charge of a company who realizes that like his number three person in the company is doing this and thinks it's a good idea, doesn't say, you know, I'm not sure we have a handle on this whole sexual harassment thing. All Dan Snyder did was issue a statement saying, this has no place in our the franchise or society. And the NFL said that these things are serious, it's a disturbance, and they're contrary to NFL values. I'm calling bullshit on that because it's not contrary to NFL values. He is the third owner in the last two years. Jerry Richardson, Woody Johnson, who is at a bit of a kerfuffle because he constantly uh, makes comments about people's uh, women's looks and talks about them when they leave the room uh, as the ambassador to Great Britain. He is the Jets owner. That's 10% of the ownership. And Roger Goodell has leaped into action and decided to do nothing because Dan Snyder hired a law firm to investigate it. And Goodell is going to say, well, we're going to look forward to see what they have to say. We're not going to do our own investigation. 
couple weeks ago, Andrew said to me, you know, something about he's supposed to be the liaison. I said, no, he's not. He works for the owners and blah, blah, blah. And, and I kind of thought about that afterwards and said, but that's not the way, say, I act as a union president. If I see our teachers are behaving in ways that are racially insensitive to their colleagues, we address it because that's my job. I don't make $44 million a year. My stipend's 11000 But that's what my job is to make sure that, like, we address this so we make things better. Goodell, another person which one of us put on our list of worst people in sports, has chosen to do nothing. Woody Johnson gets away with it. Dan Snyder gets away with it. That's the NFL culture. That's your values. Women should be cheerleaders or they should just take the abuse. Well, I think it's... Ron Rivera, I think, uh, you know, he talks about values, and I find that I, I chuckled a little bit during it because he is now two for two on owners that he's worked for. Jerry Richardson being one of them, and now Dan Snyder being the second. But it, it, it's the Andrew Gillum thing. I'm not saying you're a racist, sir. I'm saying racist <laughs> think you're a racist. Yeah. yeah, like at some point you go, Ron, come on. And and the thing that that's frustrating is, you know, we've talked about the Rooney rule and the need for more minority coaches, and Ron Rivera is one of them. And it, and it also shows, like, the inexcusable behavior is inexcusable among all all coaches. If you're a Redskins fan, if you're, oh, sorry, a Washington football team fan, you, you sit there and you're grumbling, oh, they're going to change the team name. And then they change the team name. And then the next day, all this comes out and you're like, ah, oh, this this franchise might not be good. Like, it's, uh, what's that, that, that old uh, uh, British show, like, when it's the Nazis in World War Two, and they go, are we the baddies? Like, at some point, we just, you know, just burn the Washington football club to the ground and start over again. And by the way, it should be the Washington team of football. So it could be WTF. Because that would be the perfect, perfect. acronym for the, the, that team. The defensive coordinator now in Washington, I believe, is Jack Del Rio. Oh. I, I'm almost positive. And I, I, uh, that reaction there... List to our listeners, uh, go check out his social media. See, see what he has to say about some world affairs if you want to know uh, how in line he is with the Snyder former, regime. He was a former Raiders coach, right? He was a Raiders coach, Jags, Jacksonville. Jacksonville yep. Where he made everybody swing an axe into a they, tree stump, uh, and then it's, I think the kicker missed the stump and hit his own leg and was out for the rest of the year. You know, I don't think these coaches are smart. <laughs> and they keep getting fucking hired. Um, what is the common denominator there? Oh. Whiteness, I don't know. Um, to, to Woody and to Snyder, the drizzling shits of of just like American businessmen, uh, billionaires, the worst, the worst of the worst. And until the shield, until the brand really loses a dollar, Goodell is going to protect these fucking guys. And where's the They're room? not going anywhere? He protected. He protected Bob Kraft. They're not going on, on Tuggate. On, on Tuggate. Yeah, not, there's another, there's yeah, another. There's a third one. <laughs> um, and clearly there needs to be a Rooney rule or some kind of oversight for women in these jobs. Obviously, the, the advent of women into sports media has created some pushback. But I don't think anyone who watches sports media thinks that we're worse off because Mina Kimes and Rachel Nichols and and Delta, uh, Delta, uh, Doris Burke. Doris Burke. Delta Burke was the other one. Delta yeah. Burke, designing women. Yes. Okay, boomer. Well, okay, boomer. <laughs> well, I, 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 I also think you know you mentioned the cheerleaders and some of the access to cheerleaders is what you see a big wage gap in the NFL is these cheerleaders get paid like a hundred and hundred, a few hundred bucks like a game. Like they're not considered part of like the team, and they basically have to like take jobs. It, it is beyond. It is beyond being able to discuss because it's like. At some level, you look at this and go, 
oh, they're this is like they're exploiting women the same way like pimps exploit well, women. The Redskins' use of their cheerleaders was not that different from Louisville. Yes, in terms mm-hmm. of the use of women and. To explain to a woman who wants to be an NFL cheerleader, it's the, really the only way they can get involved in the game, to explain to them that these 70-year-old, drooling, old, rich, white guys are going to stand and watch them do a bikini shoot, and that's okay, and that Dan Snyder doesn't say, oh, this is a cultural issue and I need to get control of it, it's because he bought the $195 million yacht and he didn't give a shit, he's watching IMAX films on his yacht. And Roger Goodell is fine with it. Just keep sending him the $44 million checks. I really don't like Roger Goodell. not going to get any argument from uh, <laughs> anybody on this panel. To shift gears a little bit, the UConn uh, community, the UConn basketball, um, I guess the, the fraternity, because this is on the male side, but it's everybody. It's the whole the UConn community lost one of its, lost one of its members much too young. Um, Stanley Robinson, affectionately known as Sticks, passed at the age of 32 father of three was found in his home in alabama by his mother um this week there's no there hasn't been it's believed to be of natural causes no nothing's come out cause of death otherwise to lose to lose somebody at that age three children three young children left behind tragedy um stanley robinson played at uconn his four years at uconn were concurrent with my four years at uconn um he came in as a freshman in 2006 coming off of like the most disappointing UConn men's team in their program history in 06. That's when they lose to George Mason in Elite Eight. They have this team with like Rudy Gay and there's five first round draft picks and they just when this team wanted to play, they they would have they would they would have blown that Noah Horford Florida team off the court. They didn't get that far because they decided to lay an egg against George Mason in the Elite Eight. It was I'll never um, forget Calhoun begging the team that during t- t- come on guys you've got to play harder <sighs> than this come on you got to play harder it's like it's wow. so disheartening and you see what happened like rudy gay is the only guy there's five M- there's five first round picks on that team and rudy gay is the only one that really amounts to shit josh boone Hilton armstrong they've people don't know his name josh boone remember him Hilton armstrong remember him mark Williams, remember him these guys didn't amount to shit and i think it you know there was a certain there was a lack of just of of effort and the, the culture i think that year was bad so we go into 06, 07. I'm coming into UConn as a freshman. And all these guys leave for the NBA. They lose, I think, the first six or seven guys in the rotation are all gone. So it's an enormous recruiting class that, that freshman year. Stanley Robinson from Alabama is one of the prized recruits. Uh, blue chip. He's not a McDonald's All-American, but he makes... He's like a top 30, top 40 play. He's like on the, on the Parade magazine. He's an, he's an All-American in some publications, whatever. He's, he's, a, he's a blue chip recruit. Spurns the University of Alabama to come here, and like any team that, at least in the in the pre sort of like Calipari Shashevsky one and done era, like if you're gonna field a bunch of freshmen, you're not gonna be very good. So that that first year, that 0607 season, they play hard. They play their balls off. They're they're about a 500 team. They play a lot of close games, but the Big East is like super deep and it's super tough, and they just get swallowed up. And they're they're I believe they're about a 500 team. Fast forward, 07-08, <clears throat> my sophomore year, Stanley's sophomore year. Sluggish start. They play kind of a brutal non-conference schedule where they get beat up. They take, the, they take some licks. They get into the Big East schedule, and it's like they, they, this, this group, this collection of like freshmen and now sophomores, like these guys have something, Stanley Robinson being a huge piece of that. They go, they make the jump from 500. They win, I believe, 24 games that season. 
They bomb out in the first round of the tournament as a four seed to 13 seeded San Diego via a, a buzzer beater that I'm surprised doesn't get more play. I mean, this kid on San Diego hits like a 35-footer, and this is one of those where I believe they're down two. So he's, this has to go in. It's not like the force overtime, whatever. This is like a, or the game's tied. And I, I never see it in those like highlight packages during March Madness of like great buzzer beaters. But look it up. San Diego, UConn. Oh, wait. Broke my heart that Friday afternoon. <clears throat> but this leads to I remember that game. the next season. Oh, wait. Oh, nine. My all-time favorite team, in the, possibly in sports, honestly, the 08-09 UConn team. Stanley Robinson doesn't play that first semester. Stanley Robinson suspended for the team from the team. I don't think it's ever disclosed publicly. I think the belief at the time was that it was ac- academic, like he just wasn't, you know, wasn't going to class, wasn't showing up. He's suspended from the team. He gets a job, takes a job that fall. I guess as a, he's still going to class, whatever. But he takes a job at a Willamantic, a Willamantic scrap metal factory. Zach knows like Willamantic yep. is this like border. I have it, a general idea it, where it, it is. It borders yeah. stores. It's about a 15 minute drive, but like he like takes a job there and Calhoun's like, all right, you're, you're back. You're back for the, you're back for the spring semester. Like any team that you go from year one, all freshmen, you know, you can take your, take your knocks. Everybody comes back for year two. You show market improvement. Everybody comes back for year three. You throw in, a player of the caliber of Kemba Walker, even as a freshman, which that was his freshman year. And you've got a you've got a fucking dynamic top team. They're preseason number two. This is, you know, this is a blue chip, you know, every, on, on everybody's final four shortlist. And they are the best team in the country up until about mid-February, where they lose one of Robinson's classmates, Jerome Dyson, who I believe was their leading scorer at the time. Shooting guard, real dynamic player, had a cup. Of, of coffee in the NBA. I think he played a couple of games as like a, on like a 10-day contract with the Thunder years later. Um, but he was really good. Uh, here's his knee in February. UConn's never the same. They lose to Pittsburgh twice in like a couple of weeks span. There's a famous highlight of Dewan Blair hip-tossing the great Hashim Thabit, who was a classmate of Robinson's as well. But he gets hip-tossed by Dewan Blair, and it's kind of like the for a lot of UConn fans, like as great as Thabit was while he was there for three years, like... And kind of what kept him from being a great NBA player was the fact that he kind of just lacked that sort of like killer instinct. Um, that and that it, sort of he, he wasn't mean enough to be, and he couldn't shoot from more than eighteen inches away. And he had surprisingly <laughs> good like shooting mechanics, but like no, he just was bad hands, bad hands. You couldn't. He had pretty good like post moves, but getting the ball to him in the post, like the ball would just deflect off his hands. So. And, so he couldn't catch it. If he did catch it, he could do some shit. <laughs> he just couldn't catch it. But he could do some shit, but he might miss the shot anyway because uh, he wasn't a good shooter. Exactly. It was, it was, but it, the moves look good. Five blocks a game. He was like a poor man's like Okafer, um, a less, much less polished like Okafer. He was five inches taller. He, uh, he was one taller. Anyway, um, that 08 09 team, they still make the Final Four. Um, they lose to Michigan State. The highlight of that game, and it's the highlight really of like Robinson's entire career UConn one of the most to me still the best in-game dunker I've seen in college basketball like live this guy he has this like putback dunk against Michigan State late in the game in the final four that just is like and there's like a 12 minute it's a great YouTube video it's a it's a Stanley Robbins compilation I mean this guy had he he had otherworldly athleticism Robinson comes back for a senior year. UConn's mediocre. They they lose um, 
they lose the beat. They lose a couple of the. There were a couple of seniors that were a year like older than Robinson that graduate. And so 2010s, whatever. 2009 was a great year. 2010 not so great, but Robinson still had a really special place in my heart. 2010 draft, he goes in the second round uh, to, to the Magic, um, gets waived. I believe the last day of of camp, and he never, just never catches on anywhere. And over the last decade, he's not like one of these guys that ever, that ever like found a home. You see guys that don't meet the NBA, that kind of like find a place in like whether it's Spain or it's Germany or it's France or Italy, Greece, anywhere. I mean, Stanley Robinson's in a different country on a different continent every year. If you look at his the teams he's played on, he was always a guy, almost like a the beat. And, he, and there were some quotes from Calhoun this week that he, he was almost too too nice, too just too friendly. Didn't have like that. You know, the, 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 there's a fine line between like a pro pro and like a kind of like a journeyman that just sort of is on the NBA on the basketball pro basketball periphery. And if Robinson with his athleticism, a decent jump shot, not a great ball handler. I mean, he's six eight. You know, he, he could have been like a slasher type, but he doesn't have like, just doesn't have the fluidity of movement, doesn't have like the handle. Um, I, I, I just wish it, I just, I, he never caught a, he never caught a break, never took that next step. And God almighty, guy was never in trouble. You know, never was, there was never any, nobody ever had anything bad to say about Stanley Robinson. Um, 32 years old. Uh, he turned 32 uh, the week before. His death the twenty first. Yeah, he was my favorite player on those teams and those teams that I was there, the teams that I was closest to. That I just I'd go to games and I just followed like so fucking intensely. Just a tragic story about a guy. You know, if he had gotten a break or if he could have made a, could have just taken that a next step, might have had a more fruitful career that may have put him in a better place personally. At now at thirty two, and it didn't happen, and he's and he's gone, and it's Missy sticks. Love you, man. Rest in peace. I think, uh, you know, f- first on a lighter note is Andrew, your your recall, your memory recall is insane. Jerome Dyson did sign with the Oklahoma Thunder. He played ten games with their minor league, with their G League team. I, I have to say that, and I don't mean to drop that because this is my only comment. Because obviously, you know, I barely remembered Stanley Robinson, but you and I always sit here with notes. We did spend hours. And Andrew just remembered the entire thing off the top of his head. And I remember the first time we met when we went to Gus's and we got talking about stuff and it was like, he's never forgotten the thing. And it was, it is one of the reasons this podcast works is because the level of sports knowledge and the humanity you bring is just incredible. And I just, I, I'm sitting there, looking at him, where's the fucking notes? There's no notes. <laughs> like, even if I had looked it up. 12 minutes before I got here, I would have needed notes. So anyway, yeah, um, and, and, I have nothing and, else to say. And, and Calhoun called him one of the most athletic players he's ever coached. And knowing who he's coached, I think that that says a lot. And uh, Andrew, I think you, you know, you, you did, uh, you did sticks his memory uh, justice here and, and uh, hope him and his family peace. Clearly RIP. Um, unfortunately, it seems we do one of those every single week. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about stick to politics. Not stick to sports. 
During COVID-19, we have seen the impacts on low-income families, particularly when it comes to losing employment and the ability to feed their families. That is why it is critical to donate to the Gemma Moran Food Bank in New London, Connecticut, the Southeastern Connecticut United Way, so that we can provide sustenance and comfort to families in their time of need. Welcome back, boomers and others. We are here today to talk about how the way we talk and consume media in terms of politics and sports has become exactly the same. So Jerry Zucker is the president of CNN. He was hired away from NBC where he shepherded such shows as The uh, Apprentice. I guess The Apprentice. Once you say The Apprentice, you don't need to say anything else. And um, he said, quote, the idea that politics is sports is undeniable. And we understood it and approached it that way. I think this has incredible implications for us as a country. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. Because the intersection of sports and politics, we often talk about the way that politics intrudes on sports. Here I think is a place where sports is intruding on politics. So, Zach, where are you on this topic? Well, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm... I, I, I work in politics. I have a bachelor's in political science. I don't know if I am somewhat uniquely just, uh, able to talk about this or if I'm an elitist for talking about it, but probably a combination of both. I think that we have seen a rise in coverage, and a lot of it is the 24-hour coverage of media, but a lot of it comes from the way talk show hosts talk, the way we see on ESPN, uh, and especially when we saw a rise on shows like on CNN. You can't... In 2020, even in this like this COVID world, there is somehow between C- the, the CNN, MSNBC, Fox News wing and the ESPN, Fox Sports 1 wing, there's more crossover of, of topics of conversation than there's ever been. You have, and they've been doing this for the better part of the last decade, ESPN and Fox mainly, where they frame their morning talk shows, basically their non-live sports programming, their non-news, their non-sports center programming. They just, it's basically from the time you wake up till about middle after, mid-afternoon into the evening, it's all just kind of, it's, it's embrace debate. We're going to debate sports topics. Now, where does that start? For and, and you guys could probably better inform me on this. I think of when I think of like political debates, namely presidential debates. I mean, I think uh, like 1960, I think like the you know, Kennedy and Nixon. And it's like, oh, if you listen on the radio, you thought Nixon won, but if you see it on TV, you see him sweating, you think Kennedy won, this and that, whatever. But like presidential debates for at least the last half century plus have, I mean, these are these huge television events, you know, and it and it's trickled down, it eventually trickles into, in, into television. And you think of like I think the earliest would be like like a William Buckley and Gore Vidal, and then and that bleeds into you know left and right debating, and then you and that leads to the McLaughlin Group on on I believe PBS where it's you've got you know two guys on the right, two guys on the left, and they're debating uh, Crossfire on CNN later at the turn of uh, in the nineties. Um, same same idea, conservatives and liberals debating the days, debating the days events. Much like if you watch First Take on ESPN with Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith, if you watch the fucking garbage with Skip Bayless and um, Shannon Sharp on Fox, you know, it's just guys 
debating sports topics. It's become very, it's a very blurred line. Andrew, you touched on something that I, there's a lot to unpack here. And, and I want to start uh, kind of in a little more focused area, which is debates. And I think talking about the Kennedy-Nixon debate is a perfect example. The people who listened to the debate on the radio overwhelmingly thought Nixon won. The people who watched it on TV overwhelmingly thought Kennedy won. That kind of happened for about 20, 30 years, but it got worse with the rise of 24-hour news coverage and the ways of, of it kind of becoming uh, uh, sportified, to, to, to use a term that, in a word that doesn't exist. Before a, a football game, before NFL Sunday, there's an hour and a half, two-hour pregame show on ESPN that talks all about everything we're going to see today, the teams going off head-to-head, my team versus your team, your team versus my team. You watch a debate. And, and, and let's go to recent, the, the Hillary and, and, and Trump debate. Two hours, hour and a half, three hours before, all day coverage on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News about what the debate is, who's going to win, what points are they going to score. And at the end of the debate, you know, I, I think a lot about the debate of, of Hillary and, and Donald Trump when Donald Trump was, like, pacing around uh, behind Hillary like a baboon. And <laughs> Hillary was trying to make a point. And, and the, at the next day or at the end of it, no one talked. No one talked about what they were talking about. No one talked about the policies they were debating. No one talked about what they were saying that was going to impact how they would be president. They were talking about, well, Donald Trump walking around behind Hillary. What sign does that show? Who wins? Who scored the most points? Okay, Donald won on that one based on visual. Point for Donald. And it becomes this very, like, ESPN-style way of looking at policies and in sports, it is a very black and white. This team did this. This team did this. Your team did this. My team did this. In politics, it is a nuanced, complex, gray area. And they cover it as if it's black and white. So Chris Kaliza, who is the worst, probably the most extreme example of this in any major newspaper. He works for the Washington Post and CNN. I don't know if he still works for the Washington Post, but he used to work for the Washington Post. So I looked at the February 8th comments he had about the debate february 8th by the way when i mention these things is going to seem like it's an epoch ago the way that people talked about serfs and uh <laughs> <laughs> but he had the winners Buttigieg, because quote Buttigieg was in control most of the night he and maintained momentum he talked about sanders because very little in this debate will peel support away from him he talked about mike bloomberg as a winner because it said he was mentioned, which means that he matters, which is the first step toward a plausible path to the nomination. The losers were Biden because he needed something to change the trajectory. And and he not sure he got it. Sounds like Patrick Mahomes and coverage. War, and Warren. He was in, unwilling to draw anything but the most tepid contrast between yourself and the two frontmen. And also, by the way, the lighting. Because you could see their faces but not their hands. That kind of coverage of politics reinforces the belief that there is nothing that's going on in that stage that has anything to do with the lives of the people who are watching it. The New York Times, and I will admit, I subscribe to both the Washington Post and New York Times. I I, I pay money every month for them, $25 combined, because I think it's important to have good journalism and... I've never canceled, despite the fact I'm often tempted to by the Times. David, Brooke, had, David Brooks hasn't put you over the edge yet. They had 16 <laughs> people Brett grading the debate on a 1 to 10 scale. 16 people. 
They did not have 16 people cover anything other than this ever. Like 16 people. So Brett Stevens was on the panel. Ugh. Like, I just, uh, I just like Brett Stevens. Former uh, New York Times employee Barry Weiss was probably yeah, on the I, panel. I, no, she was not. That would have required work. Um, <laughs> but I expect Brett Stevens to be the terrible right-wing voice. But they also had literally the worst writer I've ever read in my life, Maureen Dowd on it. And the ultimate access journalist. Right, the ultimate access journalist. Because, the, because, the Adam Schefter of political news. Because she, because she and, and uh, uh, Ivanka get get petties together she has unlimited access that strikes me as the very worst because it brings out what somebody in 2015 wrote on one hand sports metaphors can be seen as a way to keep politics interesting and easier to grasp but it makes it only a game and i think that's really where the the problem with this lies is it's it has no more stakes to it than at best, a Nuggets-Memphis game to see who finishes, who makes the playoffs. To, to this point, if I'm running, if I'm running a, a, an, a very active, busy sports sports book in Nevada, in Jersey, anywhere, if I'm running, if I'm running a sports book, and my top handicapper gave an assessment of, he gave me a collection of like futures bets, um, whatever, and it was the caliber of Saliza's sort of handicapping of that democratic debate. <laughs> your motherfucker get out of here. Your motherfucking fired. Like get out get out of here. That is cuz clearly like what he doesn't he clearly he doesn't know what he look, you know, you know you, poor, you, poor you, scores you, for Biden, poor scores for Warren. This and that. I mean, you know, who who were two of the last yeah, It's not fucking fantasy sports, Chris. Like exactly. Like get the fuck if if this is how you want to cover it and you want to be fucking dead wrong with how it comes out. Pund- Smell you later. Like pund- get out. pundits have no zero responsibility for previous decisions, and we know this because David Frum keeps talking about foreign policy. Like it's <laughs> like look at his record. Yeah, th- <laughs> thank you, David. We're still in the fucking Iraq because yeah, of you. Right, like yeah. you know when a sports journalist gets it wrong. You know, Patrick Mahomes doesn't go have to live in Fallujah for 15 years. <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no actual consequences. Right. <laughs> like it, it's just oh, you got it wrong. Like it it. I want to talk a little bit about the debate shows, which Andrew talked a little bit uh, about. Like, you look at Crossfire. The line between Crossfire and PTI is a straight fucking line. That, hey, instead of actually debating nuances of policy, and listen, this is not, I am not one of those people that's like, let's go back to the Walter Cronkite, you get news at 6 p.m. and you have the trusted voice. That's not the world we live in. That is not coming back. Anyone who thinks that's coming back is not living in reality. Also, I lived in it, and it sucked. There were three gatekeepers. Exactly. Now, yeah, yeah. Like, on some level, there's it's good to have more gatekeepers. And if you wanted to know policy, if you want to know policy today, you can know policy. We all have Twitter feeds. I bet you we are very well informed on policy because we follow people who we trust on all kinds of things. That did not exist 25 years ago. The problem is the vast majority of Americans don't consume media that way. You know, and again, this is not, this is off the sports topic. This isn't new. This is the way politics had always been covered, very partisan. It's just now it beca- it's become sports. I, well, I want to make a point about this, that I think that this is, we have talked about this, we talked about this last week. With Much like with Donald Trump, it's like you have an infection in your arm, and instead of treating it, you lose your arm. I think, much like a lot of things, 
what Donald Trump did is just simply exemplify and amplify how awful this is because this is someone that daily tweets out awful things. You watch SportsCenter, and SportsCenter's on for nine hours. They're covering breaking news. This thing happened. This thing happened. You flip over to Fox News, it's the same fucking thing. You flip over to CNN, it's the same fucking thing. They all look the same. Every visual looks the same. They are covering it exactly the same. They are they 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 have pardoned the interruption it and and around the horn it and first taked it down to okay. We're gonna have a very serious policy debate about what is going on in Portland and like federal overreach. And we're going to give everyone two minutes to make their point. At the end, someone wins and someone doesn't. And by the way, no one on PTI says, well, you know, Seth Curry is only shooting 34% from three. And so I don't think he's that good. They don't have to be cross-checked on that. But on CNN and Fox, it's viewed as out of, not Fox so much, CNN, NBC, it's viewed as out of bounds to say that fact is inaccurate. Like, it's not a fact. You're just wrong. He, he, that, hold on. Here's where I push back on sure. that point a little bit. Is that CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, when Donald Trump was holding his speeches in 2016, did not fact check a single thing. Oh, no, we're agreeing. Because, yeah, because, but, because you can get away with it on, on, on but, news but, media. But, but this is where it's wrong. Is you shouldn't be able to get away no. with it. The illusion of objectivity should not be important, more important than the conveying of information. But they have decided it is, and part of that is because they're having a model in which Skip Bayless acts way better than Kylie McEnany. And by the way, you know where she's st- – is that, is that how you pronounce her last name? McEnany. You, you, you nailed McEnany. it. That, yeah, you nailed oh, that McEnany. one. You killed it. Right. That one you nailed. There we go. I'll have to undo it now. Well, you know how to but, pronounce Irish <laughs> names. <laughs> yeah, if I can't do the Irish, if I can't, can't do, do the Irish names, you're fucked. But, you got to make but, me work a little bit here. But you know how, but you know how Kylie McEnany – got her job because CNN paid her to be a surrogate for Trump. And you know why they paid her to be a surrogate for Trump? Because people wouldn't do it for free. So in this weird-ass environment where they're maintaining the illusion of objectivity, that when people come on for the Biden campaign, they're free. But you have to pay the Trump people because they're not going to, like, there's only a couple dead enders that'll do this work. And McEnany turned this into a White House job. And CNN has learned nothing from this. Nothing. Morning Joe maybe has had a three-minute contemplation about, well, maybe we shouldn't have had him on every single morning. But even then, probably not. Everything, and this is it's been at least a two-decade downward slope here. Everything is dumbed the fuck down. If you're watching around the horn, and pardon the interruption, and all in the in the various morning shows, the first takes this and that, and you are a you're a, you consider yourself a savvy, a sharp, whatever NFL fan, NBA fan, baseball fan, whatever whatever your whatever your fucking passion is, you're a big fan, and, and you're and you're watching that to uh, kind of instruct and inform your takes. You're fucked. You're not getting shit out of that. Well, if you're watching, if you're watching. Let's say meet the press or face the nation on Sunday morning, and you get you get the roundtable segment. You know they have the guests and they have the roundtable, the roundtable, and like meet the press. You got Hugh Hewitt is going to talk for five minutes, excusing the latest Trump bullshit. There's going to be somebody on both sides on every show just talking in very rudimentary, broad strokes, quickly about nuanced, like you've said, topics that 
need more attention. But these are the shows that so many people, you know, the viewership for Meet the Press is still huge. The viewership for, like, even the, the, the primetime shows, and they don't... If this is where you're getting your information, then you're not going deep enough. If you want to consider yourself to be savvy, informed, sharp, sports, politics, or otherwise. And there's a weird parallel between how both sides have have really engaged in this. Well, I think it, it's, you know, and I brought this up, so so maybe I don't want the discussion to get lost in this, but there is a sense of team that I want to talk about, the, the team aspect of it, which is the way you cover sports journalism. If you're in a team, you support the Jets. The Jets are playing the Patriots. They're going to cover the Jets. They're going to cover the Pats, and then you fight it out. But in politics, like, I think back to uh, Obamacare. And does anyone remember, you know, I'm sure you guys remember the Obamacare debate. The Obamacare debate was not discussed in a nuanced policy of how this is a government mandate to, pri- to, to collect private insurance, to uh, insure yourself with private insurance. It was not covered as a debate that will increase coverage for people. It was, a, it was pushed as a debate of Barack Obama versus the Tea Party. Barack Obama versus this conservative right wing. Barack o- the, the debt ceiling debate. Barack Obama versus John Boehner. Things like the debt ceiling. Things like Obamacare. These are complex thousand-page bills that it was whittled down to there are going to be death panels killing your grandma instead of, like, the way that they did of, of two-minute... And, and you cannot... A lot of politics, you cannot whittle down to two-minute things. Like, the politics of it... The politics of who's up and who's down, who's good and who's bad, that's a different thing. When it comes to debating policy, it is insane to limit policy to a way of a two-minute debate of who wins and who loses. At at some level, I spend a lot of my professional life trying to talk to people about how legislative policy affects them and how, although they identify with one party, that party is pushing for things that will cut their pensions in half and hurt their health care and take away their raises. And so I end up with a lot of, you know, for me in Connecticut, a lot of Lamont, who's a Democratic governor, and Trump voters. I just end Same up here. with that. Same here. Because politics is nuanced and it is hard. The one place I would argue that the conversion of politics in sports has been helpful is in the evaluation of polls and the evaluation of where we are. And I would say this because, you know, Bill James made the point that he did not increase the way people look at statistics. All he did was make it more nuanced about how they looked at statistics. The fact that Al Oliver drove in 107 runs every year was less impressive when you realized that the average player would have driven in 111. Like, you know, and and Bill James, to credit, did this before computers. He did this before access to box scores. He did this at a time when no one else was doing it, and he made us think again. A Bill James acolyte is Nate Silver, you know, who was taking up uh, economics at at the University of Chicago. He ended up with a master's from uh, the... uh, London School of Economics in both political science and economics. And he ended up running baseball prospectus for, for eight years, I think, because he developed the Pakoda algorithm. I just want to stop for a second here. This is one of my detours. 
He named it after Bill Picotta because he thought Bill Picotta was the most average major leaguer ever. I remember Bill Picotta. He was the most average major leaguer ever. <laughs> he was the Mendoza line of politics. No, no, no. no. Bill Picotta was, he played second, short, and third, but rarely second, short. Like, he mostly played second and third for a bunch of teams. He is a lifetime 249 hitter, but his on base percentage was about 320. He was decent defensively. He is incredibly average. And so they backronymed his name into the algorithm. But anyway, but like we followed polls way back. Like I followed polls. Yeah. And before this, and now, you know, he became famous because he hit 99. 101 out of 102, if you count DC, possible right answers in the presidential elections in, in 8 and 12. Yep. And that's where, he, I mean, that's where his legend began. He is also only 42 years old. Have you seen him? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm shocked about that. But, yep. but I mean, like, to me, that's an okay way to handle politics and sports because the knowledge of both on pure horse race is okay. And what I respect about Nate Silver is he always says this has nothing to do with policy. And they should be uh, different people. See, I, I disagree a little and I, bit. And I could I, be wrong there. I disagree a little bit because Nate Silver was poll-based in 2016, and all his polls and all his analysis proved wrong, and Donald Trump got elected. He didn't say our algorithm was wrong. He didn't say blah, blah. He said, oh, well, I only gave Hillary a 70% chance, so he blah, gave, blah. It, it, he gave her the bullshit most, answer. Well, he, no, it, it was 73-27. Everybody else didn't have it that way. So he said, you know what? I had." The, he was not incorrect in saying I had the best chance of Trump winning. He was correct in that. Absolutely. What's weird is that whereas we can look at the Cleveland Cavaliers Golden State Warriors series in the year they won 72 games. What year was that, Andrew? So the 73 games. The 73 game season, that was 15-16. Right. We can look at that and say, okay, you played that series 100 times, they went three. They just happened to hit one of the three because Draymond Green has, there is a non-zero percent chance he'll kick somebody in the balls. There's a non-zero percent <laughs> chance that Steph's, Angles will this act is pre, up. This is pre-Durant, too. Right, like right. There's a non-zero percent chance on these things. So we could say you could play it. We don't think of that way with elections. We don't think, like, well, this group of people will stay home and this people group of people will go. I'm not sure we're not we're right about that. We just don't think of it that way. We're getting somewhere here. And I'm going to try to, like, transition it to. It's one thing for, for a sports talk show to, let's just say, for example, frame a uh, like a Bucks Lakers NBA Finals in a few months. It's one. It's one thing for a dumb talk show to frame that as just a, an explicit referendum on. Well, this series just comes down to a matchup of LeBron versus Giannis, which is fucking dumb. It's dumbing down. It's you're if if you're watching this series, just think it's just going to be about LeBron and Giannis. Then you're not watching it from a with any sort of like. Any critical and you don't want to be you don't want to analyze it, be critical about it. But and that's fine. That's sports. That's the that's the theater. That's the theater of entertainment. Politics is not that. Like you said, Zach, if you want to make the original ACA thing like a referendum on Boehner v. Obama and cover it like that, that's fucking dangerous. It's not trivial like yeah. covering a basketball series like that. That's fucking dangerous. It's like well, if you vote this way, you vote this way. You like Boehner. His house, you like Obama. 
that's fucking dangerous. That's it's it's literally discouraging being sort of uninformed. Like if that's if that's how they're going to cover it as the battle between those two. It's it's uniquely frustrating to have studied this for years and to work in this and to see what you have studied and what you work in devalued to a 30-second conversation about who had the best speech. Like, you look at Trump and Biden. We are talking about there are people being taken off the streets in unmarked vans in Portland right now by federal agents. There, There is a president tear-gassing people for a photo op outside a church. And the news is covering it as in, well, how will this affect his polls against Joe Biden? And it's like, at some level, you go, who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? Like, at some level, it, we have moved beyond that. Like, this is not, you know, I'm a Democrat. I, I've been a Democrat my whole life. I won't be a Democrat very soon, but I've been a Democrat my whole life. And I don't feel like I am on a team. It is not the way I root for the Jets. I don't support Democratic policies the way I support Jets Jets moves, where, like, basically the Jets make a trade for Jamal Adams that's awful, and I go, well, it wasn't so bad, and figure it out. That's not the way politics should be. Politics should be about ideas and values and discussions, like— and when you cover it like sports, you end up covering it as if there's a good trade. And you end up covering it like, oh, the DNC is going to have John Kasich speak at their convention. That's like discussing. And then they discuss it as if, well, what if the uh, Red Sox traded for A-Rod back in the day? And it's like, this very fucking different things. Like, one of these things doesn't matter. And one of these things does. Because at the end of the day, sports is entertainment. And politics impacts how we live and how we're going to live in the future and what our day-to-day life is going to be like. And to cover it as if those are the same things is devaluing our political process. And it makes people get into these corners where it's like, I'm a Democrat. Anything the Republican does is wrong. Or I'm a Republican. Everything the Democrat does is wrong. We see that in the sense of there's no better way. uh, uh, You talk polls. There's no better poll that showed this than when it went into political party confidence in the economy. Under Obama, it was like 70-30 Democrat. Under Trump, it was 70-30 Republican. Nothing fucking changed. But my team was in charge. And that is what we've gotten to. I really can't agree more. I admire, in a lot of ways, the work of the aforementioned Nate Silver. Um, I remember his book, What's the Signal and Noise? I read it like three times, cover to cover, and like there's a lot of... I like his, his backstory of like using his like quant background to approach poker... And like I, we kind of had similar time frames of like um, making money playing online poker, and then the games got really tough and much more mathematical. And then even he started losing money, and I also started losing money. So, <laughs> but silver, there is a there is a use, a a highly instructive use for st- statistics and modeling in politics and in sports that is shared, that is parallel. It is in coverage. It is in it is in news coverage for coverage of politics and policy to sort of almost in a way take their cue from how sports is covered is is fucking deplorable the difference it's disgusting because i love sports as much as anybody and i want i would love for more finely crafted curated sports coverage on in mainstream media but you know what i can find that I can find that on sort of like the outs, the, not the front page of ESPN.com. I can find that. 
politics, you know, a lot of people take their fucking cues from the front page. From Q. From, from, from <laughs> Q. Uh, from Q. 30, 39 Q candidates. From the front page, from the 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock hours on CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox News, whatever. And like Zach said, the whole tone and tenor of that conversation, it just does our electorate. And our, it just does it. It just does our politics no justice. The Venn diagram of Maureen Dowd's access journalism compared to Adam Schefter's <laughs> access journalism or the Venn diagram of how Joe Scarborough covers politics and the Venn diagram of how Trey Wingo covers sports is a fucking circle. It's a circle. Who do you think? So, can I, I'm sorry. Can, who is? Isn't that the definition of a Venn diagram? No, a Venn diagram is two separate circles. That's well, question. One two, circle. two converging circles. Well, I mean, yes. but it could be one. No, no. They, who is it, Scarborough? It's, it's, it's overlap. It's still a group of circles. It's a really good analogy. Who is Scarborough's <laughs> closest contact? Who is Schefter's closest contact in your in your mind? Is there like? Can you think of somebody that like Roger Goodell and Donald Trump? Is uh, it, is Scar- it really Scar- no? Well, Scar- oh, Scarborough's closest contact is Ivanka. Ivanka. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I have no idea about Schefter. I'm sure there's somebody who who were maybe it's Goodell. It, it might Goodell. be Goodell. Yeah. Real quick, real quick to to lighten this up a bit. Who is the political uh, person that most embodies the Mendoza line? Oh, where you just barely. Oh, Joe Manchin. Oh, Wait, Joe, no, 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 like, no, I think I think no, like, that's like, the answer. An elected official or like a, <laughs> no, some, no, a TV personality? Any, any no, of no, it. anybody. No, it's Joe Manchin. <laughs> I'm thinking TV because, because as somebody who has to, who has to be a Democrat and who doesn't want to see Manchin lose. Manchin is the definition of the Mendoza line, oh, including including Mendoza's on base percentage and slugging percentage. <laughs> I, would, I, would go, I would go Andrew Cuomo. Also, I was oh. going to say his brother because I thought you were going oh. TV. Per- Chris Cuomo. Yeah, it, Chris Cuomo. Thank you, thank you. The That's TV guy. Chris Cuomo. The TV, I yes. would have gone Chris Cuomo. It, it, He's it, fine. Andrew He's fine. Andrew Cuomo know. is the. Andrew Cuomo killed oh. 30,000 New Yorkers and, and is considered the hero. And, and Andrew, Chris Cu- is just Andrew Cuomo is a Dwayne Kuyper line. <laughs> <laughs> so, Who gets that? <laughs> so one of the reasons that we started this podcast, and it did not occur to me until right now, is that we are all obviously huge sports fans, and we're all obviously very liberal, and we understood the hypocrisy of being both. And we wanted to talk about that. And that's kind of what we talk about. But I think one of the things that helped me work through that is this conversation. Because one of the things we understand about sports is the stakes are way lower. That you could trade Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi because you have bad information. And that's not going into Iraq because you think they have weapons of mass destruction that nobody dies over that, and that you can kind of mislead people about Samanje P. Ryan's Heisman chances. That's different than misleading people about what the Affordable Care Act does for their health insurance. These things are all very different, and when we treat them like they're all the same, we're just reduced, not as sports fans, but as people who live in this country and root for sports, and I think that that's, I think that's what this conversation was about. Uh, we will be back next week with the Bill Bradley Collective.
Thank you for listening to the Bill Bradley Collective. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please check out our Facebook page at the Bill Bradley Collective. 